Welcome to chapter 42 of A History of England. I'm David Beeson. This is the episode that talks about how the business of the British Empire was business, how that business developed, and how, as well as some remarkable upsides, it had its downsides too. At the start of the 18th century, there were huge changes taking place in England. With 700,000 inhabitants, London had the biggest concentration of urban dwellers in Europe. Britain had followed the example set by the Netherlands in turning itself into a major business centre, with a thriving stock exchange and huge overseas trade. It's fun to compare the two countries, and the economic historian Angus Madison has given us the information to do it. In Europe at the start of the 18th century, Britain was second in gross domestic product per head, only to the Netherlands. But it was a poor second, not reaching even 60% of the Dutch level. By 1820, Britain was still second, but the Dutch advantage had closed to just 8%. Half a century further on, Britain was in the lead, with the highest GDP per head of Europe. France was the terror of Europe, the continent's greatest military power, having taken over top spot from Spain. But on GDP per head, it was way behind either the Netherlands or Britain. It seems that if you want prosperity, business does it much better than warfare. A thought for you to ponder on is that the most recent figures available in our own times put the Netherlands back in front out of these three, with France slightly ahead of Britain or slightly behind, depending on whose calculations you believe. Aren't the long-term fluctuations of national fortunes curious? Take your eye off the ball and you lose your relative advantage fast, it seems. Back then it was Holland that had taken its eye off the ball. As we said before, the ruinous costs of the repeated wars against France had left them battered financially. They'd cut back on a lot of public expenditure, and one of the major effects was that they surrendered their position as the leading nation for overseas trade. That was a gap into which Britain was eager to step, with that wonderful institution we've heard so much about already, the East India Company, leading the way. The East India Company, founded towards the end of Queen Elizabeth I's reign, was an English private company whose mission was to develop trade with India and further east. It neatly expressed that marriage of business and global power that marked English overseas expansion, later embodied in the British Empire. Its goal was to turn a profit for its shareholders by exploiting commercial opportunities. One of its chief means of doing that was to set up trading posts around East Asia, and particularly in India, from which it would sell products from home and export local goods back to the mother country in return. But, as well as the East India Company, London had another hugely important asset, its stock exchange. We've already seen even the Austrian emperors, one of the really greatest of Europe's royal families, going cap in hand to the stock exchange for loans to finance their continuing fighting in the War of Spanish Succession. The exchange, once the poor cousin of Amsterdam's, was emerging as the world's leading financial centre. Prosperity had more than simply financial consequences. 
where the court around the king had previously been the main source of patronage in the country, now increasingly the centre of gravity was moving to London. Finance independent of the crown was flowing to theatres, to publishers, to clubs and so on. Many of the clubs were political in tone, as were the coffee houses, where like-minded people could meet and discuss their business, whether commercial or political. There were taverns as well as coffee houses, so you didn't have to rely only on politics to get intoxicated. There were also brothels catering to a wide range of tastes. One way or another, and however the moralists felt about it, London was increasingly making its own entertainment independent of the king and his court. Political debate had become lively too, reflecting the continuing slippage of political power as well as the power of patronage from the monarch's immediate circle towards London and specifically towards Westminster, where Parliament met. We've already seen that it wasn't always safe to be in opposition when we talked about how defeated candidates might be treated after elections or when we saw many Tories, triumphant at the end of Queen Anne's reign, fleeing into exile when George I took over and engineered a Whig victory. Here, though, is an even more striking case, and one involving someone of whom you've heard, Daniel Defoe. That's right, the man who gave us Robinson Crusoe. He was an early spin doctor working on behalf of the government, writing articles and leaflets in support of the Whigs. He was also a dissenter, you remember, one of those Protestants who didn't go along with the high church Anglicanism running the Church of England, and he campaigned for more rights for his co-religionists. Then he made a mistake. He did some satire. He wrote a pamphlet called The Shortest Way with the Dissenters, which pretended to be the work of a fanatical high church Anglican, advocating terrible persecution of dissenters. The aim was to mock high church people by caricaturing what he saw as the extreme nature of their views. Unfortunately, you need wit to grasp irony, and not everyone in politics was so readily endowed with that rare quality any more than they are today. So not everyone grasped the satire. Several churchmen endorsed the extreme stance of the pamphlet, and people on his own side were upset by it. Although he'd published anonymously, he was identified quickly, jailed, fined, and eventually forced to stand for an hour in the stocks on three separate days. Fortunately for him, the weather was lousy on all three occasions, so not many people turned out to pelt him with unpleasant or painful things, and the few who did show up preferred to throw flowers at him. Eventually, the government began to cotton on to the fact that he hadn't meant what he'd written, but had indeed been mocking people who held seriously anti-dissenter views. It paid off his fines for him out of slush funds intended for the Secret Service, which was just as well since his business had gone bust while he was in jail. Things began to look up for him quite quickly after that. The government decided to employ him as an agent, sending him to Scotland during the negotiations for the Acts of Union that created Great Britain. There, he kept an eye on the opponents to help the pro-Union cause. His story is an excellent illustration of how you need to take a great deal of care if you're going to be ironic. Appreciation of irony is far less widespread than one might like to think, 
and there are lots of humanist people out there with a lot more power than is healthy for the satirist. And, of course, his experience underlined again how risky opposition politics could be, even if you were only pretending to be with the opposition. All the same, if opposition had to tread carefully, it could still oppose. The press was lively and critical, sometimes to the point of libel against the government, in ways that no continental power would have tolerated. Tory and Whig ministries succeeded each other and each would face adversaries speaking out fiercely and with impunity against them in Parliament. If political opposition was becoming more possible, so was the promotion of distinctly unorthodox ideas, which would have faced terrible persecution in the past. Just a year after the Glorious Revolution of 1688, the philosopher John Locke had published An Essay Concerning Human Understanding. He argued against belief based on revelation, the kind of thing that was preached by the churches or by inspired individuals who felt they had some kind of exclusive access to the truth. Instead, Locke maintained, people should base themselves on the evidence of their senses guided by rigorous method. Given what people still seem prepared to believe without evidence today, it's clear that that debate has still not reached a satisfactory conclusion. Nearly half a century later, but still in this period of rapidly changing ideas, Bernard Mandeville published his Fable of the Bees. He argued that it wasn't high virtue and innocence, traditionally viewed as desirable, that built a rich and powerful nation. Instead, it was greed and acquisitiveness, generally regarded as shameful, that drove the businesses that contributed to general prosperity and funded the power on which international greatness was based. One way to illustrate this useful truth was to see that the streets of London weren't so much paved with gold as covered with filth. But the filth came from all the trade in the city, all the rubbish that the high volume of business generated, all the horse manure that coated streets as a result of the constant passage of carts and people, all the messy activity that meant that business was happening. It wasn't so much filth instead of gold, as filth that meant gold. You couldn't have the desirable stuff without the other kind. Mandeville's suggestions were met with outrage, but the idea that lots of people chasing their own interests contribute to everyone getting rich, but also perhaps just a little bit dirty, is as important today as it was then. In the strictly political sphere, although British monarchs remained powerful, they could no longer rule without consent. Not really the consent of the people, but at least the consent of Parliament. It's true that monarchs could sometimes buy control in Parliament. We saw Queen Anne build herself a Tory majority, quickly replaced by a Whig one when George I succeeded her on the throne. But it was at least a step forward that they felt obliged to go hunting for parliamentary support. They couldn't simply rule by decree without even calling parliaments, as Charles I had. The weakening of royal power and the slowly growing tolerance of opposition also led to some relaxing of religious control. We saw William III making life easier for dissenting Protestants. As far back as Cromwell, Jews were allowed back and permitted to worship. Catholics were still under severe restrictions, but there was a growing sense that religious difference no longer had to lead to religious persecution. That was helped along by people in an increasingly business-oriented country 
beginning to feel that money mattered more than how you worshipped God. Outsiders often see these things better than the locals. Voltaire, who'd kept right on getting up the noses of the authorities in France, spent a few years in exile in London in the 1720s and 30s. A frighteningly bright guy, he learnt English there well enough to write in it, and he tells us in his Letters Concerning the English Nation to take a view at the Royal Exchange in London, a place more venerable than many courts of justice, where the representatives of all nations meet for the benefit of mankind. There the Jew, the Mohammedan, and the Christian transact together, as though they all profess the same religion, and give the name of infidel to none but bankrupts. The Presbyterian confides in the Anabaptist, and the churchman depends on the Quaker's word. England had taken a big step towards becoming a nation of shopkeepers, as Napoleon would have it, or at least of businessmen. Unlike Napoleon, this earlier Frenchman obviously felt that was a good thing. Voltaire, of course, was more concerned with criticising his homeland by contrasting it with an England he regarded as more progressive. He was making a partisan point, not giving an impartial view of English life. But there's a great deal of truth in his remarks all the same. We're going to see how the far more robust economy in Britain would allow it to use its financial muscle, far more than military might, to overtake its neighbours over the next few decades. Still, it wasn't all plain sailing. You know the warning you get on any investment you might make even today? Values may fall as well as rise? Things were no different back then as we'll discover next time when we look at bubbles, or at least one bubble, though not a bubble that many people found all that bubbly. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 